Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to episode one of series nine of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. In this series, we will explore the importance of skills, reskilling and continuous learning, as well as the shift to on-demand personalized learning. I can't think of a better guest to kick the series off than our guest for this episode, Linda Gratton. Linda is a professor of management practice at the London Business School, where she directs human resource strategy in transforming companies considered one of the world's leading programs on human resources. Linda is also the founder of HSM, the research consultancy, and has written extensively on the future of work, the role of corporations, and the interface between people and organizations. Linda's most recent book, The New Long Life, a framework for flourishing in a changing world, was published at the end of May, and we'll talk a little bit about that in this episode. In our conversation, Linda and I also discuss what we have learned about people, organisations and the impact of remote working on collaboration during the pandemic. We look at the new skills, behaviours and mindsets individuals need to thrive in the future of work. We look at how to make reskilling stick within organisations. And we look at how individuals, organisations and governments can navigate the challenges of a hundred year life. Finally, we also look at the role of HR and learning teams to help drive the reskilling and learning agenda. This episode is a must-listen for anyone interested or involved in learning and skills, either from an individual or a company perspective. So that's business leaders, CHROs, chief learning officers, and anyone in a people analytics, workforce planning, HR tech, or HR business partner role. Before we get started, a brief word from our sponsor for Series 9 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. This podcast series is sponsored by Degreed, the workforce upskilling platform for one-third of Fortune 50 companies. Degreed integrates and curates all the resources people use to learn, including learning management systems and millions of courses, videos, articles, books and podcasts, using behavioural and data science to analyse everyone's skills and to automatically personalise career development based on their jobs, strengths and goals. So today I'm delighted to welcome Linda Gratton, uh, Professor of Management Practice at London Business School and renowned expert on the future of work to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Welcome to the show, Linda. Um, thank you very much for, you. for being a guest. Can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to your background and, and current activities? Oh, well, thank you for inviting me, David. So I'm a professor at London Business School. I've just got a new book coming, come out, The New Long Life, uh, and I, uh, I run uh, and founded a consulting advisory company called HSM. Great. Well, we're going to talk a bit about the book, and I think we're going to talk about some of the stuff that you touch on in, in your work as well. Um, we've, you know, we're recording this in August, and I think publishing uh, the podcast in September, which will be six months since uh, lockdown or semi-lockdown has, 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 has started. I know you've been meticulously keeping a daily diary, uh, as well as polling executives every week or so. Can you share with listeners what you've learned and how that's progressed as, as we've moved through the, the last six months? Well, you know, the diary was a really interesting thing. And I'm, actually, I've run, out with, I've run out of saying how many days it is, uh, but I still am keeping a daily diary. I'm basically just writing down what I hear from people saying. And, and I guess, you know, where we are with it is uh, March the 14th when my diary started, um, we had no idea of what the future was. We, we we knew there was a pandemic. We didn't really know how it was going to play out. So I think the first few weeks 
was just people trying to work out what's going on around here. You know, what, what, need, what should we be doing right now? And then as that's yeah. progressed, so, so, the first, so the first areas that I talked about really, uh, and I did webinars, um, I, uh, I have a series of columns that I write for MIT Sloan. So those were great in terms of getting ideas out really quickly. The first set of ideas were really about what happens if you're at home and you've got kids. So the first thing I was really talking about was how do you manage boundaries? You know, what, what is the mechanism by which working from home is different from working in an office? And what I said there is, you know, look, yeah. working in an office means you're managing two transitions, you know, going from home into the office, from the office into home. But actually, when we ask people, you know, what's your experience right now? It was primarily one of constant interruption in terms of the transition between working, looking after their kids, working, looking after their kids. And that, by the way, continues to be a real issue. So that was the first thing that, that was became very apparent. The second thing that became very apparent is that as lockdown continued, people's networks begin began to change. So, you know, over time, they were spending more time, obviously, not, you know, with their own family, but also more time in terms of Zoom and so on with people they already knew and less time with those diverse networks. So I was really worried about serendipity and innovation and creativity. I, I remain concerned about that. And then I think, you know, the third phase, as it were, which I think is the phase we're still in, is the, is the new reality. And, and what we found right at the beginning is when we said to people, can you imagine it's going to be the same when you when this pandemic is over? Everybody said, we don't want to be we don't want to go back to the same way of working. We want to do something different. And I think, you know, the third phase is really working out, well, what does that new normal look like? And uh, you know, clearly people want to remain flexible in terms of their capacity to work from home. The fact that so many of us have been amazed by how good our digital uh, infrastructure is. Um, but at the same time, you know, they miss their friends, they miss their colleagues, what's an office for? So this is a conversation that I and my advisory group, HSM, are really engaged with right now. And I think that's going to be the, the next conversation, the one after that, by the way. So if you're listening to me in January or the big end of the year, is going to be about productivity. I think, you know, we're moving into a recession. Uh, people are going to be very, very concerned about how do we really make sure that the, these new ways of working create a productive uh, uh, workforce. And, and that, I think, is going to be the, the next phase. You know, we've certainly some of the stuff that, that we're seeing as well, and we work closely with a lot of people analytics teams in large organisations. And I think all those areas that you touched upon, you know, are all top of mind. Um, and I think that there's been... Yeah, there's been a lot of stuff out there saying, oh, people saying that they more, feel more productive at home. But, you know, then there's an argument that, you know, we're in a crisis. So everyone rallies around the flag and, 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 and it's new. And, and if th sometimes when things are new, you can be more productive. But how sustainable is that in the future? And, and at what cost? You know, at what cost are, are people being more productive in terms of working hours? Um, and I think we're going to explore, I think, as we go through the, the, the as you said, you know, and I, saw, I was reading something from Michael Arena at AWS around that, you know, people are interacting more with the people they really know, as you said.
but less with the people that they don't know as well. And then, as you said, that the impact on potentially innovation and creativity moving forward could be could be large. So let's explore that a little bit, because I know your book, Hotspots, which is, uh, I think, published around 2007. Correct me if I'm wrong around that. Um, you wrote that creativity and innovation comes from chance encounters across networks. Um, how do we try and ensure that that continues to flourish in a world where we're not bumping into each other metaphorically, um, that we can only bump into each other on, online at the moment for those of us that are working virtually? And, and yeah, as you said, the new normal probably means there'll be some return to the office, uh, hopefully in, in some extent. But, you know, we are going to be living in a probably in a more hybrid world based on what, what people are, are telling you and others in, the, in their survey. Um, so it'd be good to understand that. And what are the skills that we need to, to, to do that and create that, all that, that, that important creativity and innovation in our, in our organisations? Well, I think that's really one of the questions that we're going to have to address, which is um, how do we stay creative? And I think there's really t- two ways around that. As I said in, in my book, Hotspots, that really often creativity comes through those diverse networks that allow you to bump into people you wouldn't normally meet and to talk about you know things that you would normally not talk about I think there's two areas that we've got to address right now actually one is about serendipity and technology so you know when I wrote hotspots we didn't have anything like the technologies we have now and for example my own advisory group HSM were able only last week to join up uh, many hundreds of thousands of people actually to talk about a topic that was absolutely crucial to that company right now and to moderate, have a moderated conversation, lasted uh, uh, 75 hours with people from all over the world. That would not have been possible even five years ago. So I do think that we have an opportunity to use technology more to build these big conversations. Um, But that leaves the second question, which is what then is an office for? And I I did a really interesting uh, webinar uh, with one of the most senior people from Arup, which is the architectural firm, actually for London Business School. So you can see it. uh, It's on our website. It's on the LBS website. And that was a question we had addressed. What is an office for? And, you know, if you think about an office as being a place where people sit in cubicles to work on their own, well, frankly, they can do all of that at home now. There's no need for you to sit, come into the office to sit in a cubicle to work on your own. So what an office is for is for social interaction. So one of the things that Arup is exploring as a design concept is, well, what, what would it look like if your office was a place for socializing, a place of serendipity? And I think that's going to be really important. I have to tell you, I cannot wait to get back. We have this fabulous office in Covent Garden, uh, which we'd redesigned to be more collaborative. And we were only there four days before it closed down. So that was a very sad day. I can't wait to get back there because, you know, I want to meet my team. I want to meet the, 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 you know, the clients that we advise and face to face is really important. So I think that we've got to, I don't think everybody wants to stay at home. I don't, I think what we want is we want some sort of flexibility. We want to be able to do tasks which are autonomous, uh, which require concentration at home. And we want to get together in an office to do tasks that require much more serendipity and and sort of socialising. What we've not been good as organisations in the past, even those that 
do you know appreciate uh, flexible working they do allow people to work from home it'll be like you can work why don't you work from home on friday or something like that and i think we're going to be have to be a lot more sophisticated about understanding as you say what are the tasks that people do that they can do just as pro- perhaps even more productively at home and what are the tasks and, and what are the what is the work that we do that we need to be together to do so you know creation creativity innovation as you said it's that craving human contact as well you know and how can organizations start to start to identify um those types of work where and and actually as you said build weight build workspaces and workplaces that actually enhance that uh collaboration rather than these cubicles that a lot of companies have now well i think you know many of the people who are listening in september and after september will know that you're already going through a process to to rebuild the future of work, to rebuild work. And, you know, my advice would be, and this has been the advice that I've given to those companies that that I work with, is first of all, think about the work itself and then ask yourself, you know, why is this work done? When is it done? You know, how is it done? Where is it done? And then begin to see that the tasks that are best done at home and the tasks that are best done, you know, creatively, you know, with other people. And that, that I think that level of analysis of work is going to be really important. But that's a, that's a relatively straightforward uh, piece of work. And, and it's a piece of work that we're doing at the moment. But I think the more important issue is why do people work and what do they want from it? You know, one thing that COVID-19 has revealed to us is just how diverse our experiences are. You know, I'm... Um, I'm a 65-year-old woman. Uh, I live in London with my husband in a rather large house where we both have studies of our own. We have grandchildren, but none of them live with us. And so what that means is that when COVID hit, we actually became more productive. And in fact, that's true that the the data we've been collecting uh, from the beginning actually shows exactly that, that people who didn't have to commute anymore who were at home more, who weren't disturbed, said their productivity had gone up. If, you know, some of my kids have got their own children who are aged, you know, under the age of five and are working full time with no care, uh, then productivity has gone down. And so we have to realize that not everybody's the same and that we have to be much more sensitive to what an individual wants and what they require at any point, at any stage in their life. So I think that's the, the second thing. So first thing is try and work out what it is that work is. Secondly, understand that people are different in terms of their motivations at any point in time. And thirdly, realize that it's a process of co-creation. So some of the most interesting work that I've been doing over the last month is to work with my colleagues at HSM to really uh, talk to sometimes tens of thousands of people in a company about what would you like work to be? And, And that's been a very important conversation so you know when you look at job design it's got to be a bottom-up process it's not a top-down process so how you start having those conversations about what is it you want would like work to be is is going to be really crucial and actually we talked with one of your colleagues at London Business School Dan Cable a little bit about this in our podcast a, a few weeks ago um you know in saying that you know unfortunately too many organizations still design jobs based on stuff that that you know Ford put in place at the start of the last century 
and actually if you allow people to help craft their jobs which effectively is what, what you've just said there then a you'll probably get more um you'll probably get more res better results and and you also you have a happier more motivated workforce as well yeah i think that's absolutely right but i mean you know let's also remember that the next push is going to be the push on productivity and yeah. that's where that's where hr comes in because I don't think that we can let a thousand employees design their own jobs without any sort of framework or sense no. of what the values are. So I, I think one of the, one of the analogies I've made uh, in a couple of webinars recently is to say, I don't know how many of you were trained years ago as I was in change management, where it was all about, you know, unfreeze and refreeze. Well, we're definitely in a, in, in a, in an unfrozen state. But actually, the truth is your organizations are beginning to refreeze and you want to be absolutely sure that in the process of refreezing, you build as much productivity accelerators in as possible. And that's the role. That's the special role of HR and, and of those of you who are skilled in change management and culture to do. What are the productivity accelerators? Yeah, and I think, you know, and hopefully HR is in a better place than, than it has been in years past because, you know, again, most HR teams now have people analysts working with them so they can actually start exploring some of the data around that as well. Um, and actually it lends itself, obviously HR has a role as, 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 as helping learning within the organisation. And it's what are some of the new skills or behaviours or mindsets that, that workers will need to learn in order to be more productive um, and more collaborative and innovative in, in, the, in the future of work, you know, and thinking with that lens, as you said, um, around that, that the focus on productivity is, is already there, I think, and is, is only going to come more um, in the coming months. Well, I, I think there's two areas that are going to really be crucial. I mean, David, it's no surprise that I'm going to say digital skills, um, yeah. you know, that everybody really needs to know how to make the best of technology in terms of in improving their work performance. And I think what was really fascinating for me is the very first webinar I ran, which was at London Business School uh, at the beginning of March. I can't remember the exact date. I, I was still at London Business School, so that tells you I was still in the studio. It was the last webinar I did in the studio. And I asked a question. Yeah. We had 2,000 people on the webinar. And I, the question I asked was, Tell me what your experience is right now. And I gave them five, five you know, options to choose, one of which was the technologies letting me down. Uh, very few people chose that option. And I don't know about you, David, but I think if we'd had COVID five years ago, a huge number of people would have chosen that option. So I think, you know, we're all really becoming much more sophisticated. I hate this notion of digital natives. Everyone is digital these days. And I think that... That's been a massive skill uplift for all of us. And we need to continue to uplift our skills on how do we put digital first in terms of our productivity. The second skill I think is going to be really crucial is that collaborative team building creativity skill. And part of that is going to be how do you manage a virtual team, which is different than managing a face-to-face -face team. But some of it is also... You know, you've got everybody face to face. It's now February or March or whenever it is we're going to get everyone face to face. How do you make the most of those experiences? So I think that digital and collaboration are going to be the two 
major skills that we have to build. And then for a thing for leaders, I'm guessing, you know, learning some of those softer skills as well, because I think there's been a lot of focus on the change for, for people who've predominantly worked in offices um, in the past and now having to work remotely. As, as you, I think as you highlighted there, there's probably been less focus on on managers. You know, if you're a manager who's historically had your team in front of you to manage, as you said, the, the skills to manage a team virtually are very different. And in the future, which is likely to be more hybrid, that managers are going to need, need to be able to manage well with people when they're sitting in front of them and people when they're when they're working remotely as well. And, you know, what are some of the what are some of the skills that that, that managers need to develop in this area? That, that particularly, I'm thinking about managers that ha- haven't done this much in the past. Some some of my colleagues at London Business School have been asking for some time. You know, why do we have managers? What's the role of a manager? And I've been a, always been a bit of a defender of managers because um, I think they play an in, incredibly important role within teams. And that's just going to increase and be more difficult because, as you say, David, you're a, a, a hybrid. And we see this at London Business School right now. I mean, we are teaching where half of our students are in the room. They're called yeah. the roomers and half of them are on Zoom. They're the Zoomers. And I can tell you that we've had to completely relearn how to be teachers. And, and we're learning that all the time. And London Business School has been brilliant at really, we've all as a community supported each other in trying to learn how to do it. And I think managers need to do the same. I mean, they need to form a community. If I was if I was listening now and I was a manager, I'd be reaching out to all my other manager friends and saying, how do I do this? Um, because yeah. it's a very skillful job and it really is great in managers because if we if you ever thought you didn't have a role well you certainly have a role now and so what would what should you be focusing on well i would say you know the hard and the soft really so the soft is really deep listening um i think that that there are real you know issues that are arising about people's mental health about their physical health you know people you have to listen to the people who are in your team and the second is project management skills i've i've written a piece for MIT Sloan which will be out by the time you listen to this podcast it's not out yet which is about what have i learned what are the final learnings from covid and one of them is that project management is very, very important. You know, knowing how to uh, assign responsibilities, knowing how to measure performance, knowing how to um, to really keep in touch with what's happening in your team when you don't see them. That's going to be crucial because the idea of the, you know, the way you managed was to go down the corridor and ask yourself who's in the office and does it look as if they're working? that's over. So you have to use many more sophisticated ways of both measuring what's going on in your organization, the sort of analytics that you need, but also motivating people to to become, as Dan would say, the best that they can be. I have, um, and some of you will be a member of this, I have a Future of Work consortium. And every three times a year, we choose the topic we, we think is most relevant for right now. And in our view, the, the topic that's most relevant for right now is, is how do I build trust? You know, how do I build trust at a time when you're trying to build it virtually? And how do I build trust at a time when people are under enormous pressure? And we know that yeah. 
you know, both of those things, being virtual and under a lot of pressure, is a natural breaker of trust. So, you know, we currently are in organisations where there's going to be, you know, don't ex- don't be surprised if trust goes down because it's virtual and people are under pressure. And research tells us already that that's going to, uh, you know, wash away the trust. So we have to do a lot of trust building. And that's, you know, coming back to the point I made earlier, that's a lot about listening. Another topic that's really seems to be top of the agenda at the moment, and if anything seems to be accelerated by the COVID crisis, is around reskilling. You know, what is some of the best practice that you've seen that really helps make reskilling stick within organisations? I'm guessing it's some of those skills that you've talked about around listening, but I guess around a bit around culture as well. Yeah, well, I've I've felt for some before COVID actually, David, I felt that reskilling was one of the major. Um, areas that we needed to talk about and actually interestingly in my new book which I co-authored with Andrew Scott who's an economist at London Business School The New Long Life we really go into some detail about that how the impact there's you know there's two big impacts on our lives pre-COVID uh, one is we're, we're living longer and working for longer and that remains the same by the way and the second is that we're living at a time of extraordinary technological developments. And both of those lead to the fact that we have to engage in lifelong learning. And that means constantly upskilling and reskilling. And I think that organizations have a very important role to play there, both in terms of acknowledging that upskilling and reskilling is crucial, but also in terms of building the tools. And again, um, there's great opportunities to use uh, online tools in a way that uh, we just hadn't before. I, I think it, I, I'm in two groups. One is the World Economic Forum um, Council on Work, which has a big reskilling. And, and the second is a McKinsey Consortium on Adult Education, which again, I've been a member of now for more than five years. And in both groups, in both networks, a huge focus on how you can use online learning as a way of upskilling and reskilling. And I'm not saying that that's a standalone, it isn't, but it certainly gives a lot of people the opportunity to learn new stuff. And it really means that colleagues then become uh, supporters of learning. And, and it's been very interesting for us to see during COVID when we've asked people who have helped you the most through this, we'd sort of expected them to say our managers. But it actually, the overwhelming response was, it's our colleagues who have helped us the most. So it, right now, when we're re- re- designing for companies a way of thinking about upskilling and reskilling, we've really brought collegiate groups, peer groups, to, to absolutely to the fore in terms of how you support indiv- each other to learn fast. And what companies are... You know, what examples have you got of companies that or organisations that are doing, they've got the whole reskilling and upskilling agenda, they're doing it well. And, and if so, why are they, what, what is it that they're doing that, you know, I hate to talk about best practice, good practice, shall we say, that others could learn from? Well, you know, I think that one thing I've learned from COVID, and, and maybe, you know, uh, those of you who are listening feel the same, is that whatever shape you went into COVID really determined your, your early responses. And so companies that had always had a focus on learning just accelerated that process. And I think that learning has been very much a sectorial play 
you know, so if you run a technology company like Microsoft or Tata Consulting Services, you've already put a big investment into learning because yours is a big digital strategy. Um, if you're in a professional service firm like PwC, you've always known that that uh, you know human capital is the, is at the centre of, of of your organisational strategy. So those companies, the three I'm speaking of, Microsoft, TCS, and PwC, pivoted very very quickly um, into that. And and similarly, if you look at Vodafone right now, again a big play on upskilling and reskilling because they had that anyway they were already pushing di- the digital the new digital agenda so uh, i think that the challenge is for companies who didn't have learning top of their agenda there and the banks for example some of the banks haven't had that they've now really have to had to push that and it's a great time to do so because people are very worried about their jobs they're very worried about their own personal productivity and they're very keen to learn the skills that will keep them employed. And as you said, we have the technology now that, that people can, you know, it's not just about learning in a classroom now. You know, as you as you gave the example yourself, you've got you've got rumors and zoomers at, at London Business School. So but even for there's so many there's so much learning that you can do online now, um, either as a cohort or, or as an individual. So. Uh, and yeah, I think you're right. It's just organisations need to promote that learning culture within their uh, within their organisations and and be clear on 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 the skills that they need more of in the future. And I guess this is where we're seeing technology helping uh, maybe personalised recommendations to employees around things that they might want to learn based on what they already have, based on what their career desires are, and also based on what skills the organisation needs more of in the future, I guess. So it does seem that, you know, if it, as you said, if you've got that culture within those organisations already, and certainly the ones you highlighted, you know, I, I know that, that they are really pushing this this agenda further. That's organisations. And as I said, your your book, I mean, it's out. You've obviously published a book during COVID, but I think it's a very relevant, even more relevant because of the pandemic. And I think it essentially provides a guide for navigating the challenges of a hundred year life. So we've looked a little bit from an organisational perspective, but what about individuals? What do individuals need to do to prepare? Yeah, well, um, you know, Andrew Scott and I have worked together before on, on, on a book, which was The 100 Year Life. And one of the things, you know, what's been really exciting for me over the last five years working with Andrew is that he's an economist and, and a very good economist. And I'm a psychologist. And, and that's a very unusual combination. Uh, and so The 100 Year Life was both a personal look at, well, how do you how do you manage uh, if you were, if you live to a hundred, but also an economic look, a financial look, you know. So, for example, if you live to a hundred, you're going to be working into your seventies, uh, probably mid seventies, and so that was a really important part of that story. And then we decided to write another book together, uh, the New Long Life, which came out uh, last month. And what we've done there is to really broaden the conversation to include not just demography or longevity as as a force that's going to change your life but also bringing in technology and also profound social changes such as you know what happens when most families have two working parents or what happens when you know a high proportion of the population is single and living on their own what happens when communities start uh becoming isolated 
And so where we got to with the new long life is really what we would call a framework for flourishing. And and we talked about, about three things in terms of how do you flourish. You know, the first is you flourish because you have a narrative about yourself and about your life that propels you forward and helps you think about what your possibilities are. You flourish because you engage in exploration and learning right the way through your life. And you flourish because you build relationships within your family and within your community that allow you to feel good, you know, to allow you to flourish. So so that was really what we've laid out. And in terms of my own work over the next couple of years, this notion of flourishing is going to be where I'm you know, going to be directing my attention. Yeah. So, I mean, how people can flourish, how organisations can enable their people to, to flourish. And, and I think you also in the book, you look at governments as well and, and states and what they can do around the education system to actually support longer lifespans. Well, uh, yes. And actually, just not just longer lifespans, David, but also a longer life lived at a time of extraordinary technological innovation. I mean, what, one of the basic arguments we make in the book is that human ingenuity has allowed us to live longer and has allowed us to build all these machines. But what we need now is what Andrew and I call social ingenuity, which is to say, how do we learn to live really? What What is it? What sort of lives do we want? And and it, and you know, obviously, the book was written before the pandemic, and and when the pandemic struck, before we we launched it uh, in April, in May, um, we read it again and said, "Well, look, how does it feel now?" And actually, the good news for us is it felt absolutely relevant because you know, right now, all of us are asking, "Well, what do we want? What do we want our future self to be? You know, do we want to be somebody who works all the time? Do we want to be at home more? Do we want to?" Be... Secondly. We're all realizing, wow, you know, we're just about to move into recession. We really, really need to, to upskill ourselves. And thirdly, we've spent a lot of time with our families. You know, how do we feel about that? Do we and and our communities have suddenly become more important to us? So we we actually are really pleased that the book is out now. Um, we're very pleased we didn't have to write a book about the pandemic because I can tell you there's going to be a lot of those out by January of next uh, January of 2021. Uh, I'm pleased that mine will not be one of them. Um, and so, you know, it gave it gave us a wide sweep, really. And, and we're very pleased with the book. And we hope that, you know, you as our reader will, will enjoy reading it as much as we enjoyed writing it. And I guess some of the things that you're talking around there, you know, you're talking about accelerated change. The pandemic has only seems to have accelerated some of this change even more. I mean, you know, there's a good, there's a great example from Novartis that's in the public domain. I think they had a two year plan to roll out Microsoft Teams. They rolled it out in two weeks. And there are many others yeah. that I've heard around that as well. And I think actually one thing I probably said, I think you've touched on is, you know, as you said, it's not just about longer lifespans, but actually because of all this tech, this massive technological change that we're in, the half-life of skills is getting shorter and shorter. There was some interesting research, I think, that IBM uh, published a, a year or so ago, which actually showed, you know, uh, the, the, the time span of a, of, of, of a skill or something and, and how you need to, as you said, reskill, unskill and, 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 and continue, have this continuous learning as a mindset for individuals, but also a mindset for organizations as well. Um, one of the other things you, you talk about is that it, it, the book explores the need for a shift in the perception of the aging population and the aging workforce. How might we achieve that shift? And what, what are the unique skills and capabilities that the 
the older generation, which I'm starting to think that I'm part of now as well, can 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 offer organisations. If if you live as we are, uh, long lives um, with significant technological change, then it's inevitable that we will be working longer. And that's got an implication both for the individual and for the organization. So what does it mean for the individual? Well, when we wrote The 100 Year Life, people said to me at the time, you know, Linda, what did you do differently after writing the book? And, and actually, I became healthy. Uh, and that takes a lot of time. I'm less healthy now because I've just spent two two months in the south of France drinking all the time and eating far too much. But I, I'm, I'm going to get back healthy again, I promise. Um, and so, you know, the individual has got to themselves prepare for, for a healthy aging. And that's about, you know, all, we, all the things we know, staying healthy, um, making sure that you, you're still connected to people of different age groups and, and building skills. So I think it's, you know, it is, it is about individual volition. You know, if you want to flourish, you have to flourish as an individual. But I think organizations can do a lot. And I, for me, the, the first thing they can do is stop stereotyping. Um, yeah. In the book, we have a real pop at generational labels, you know, Gen X, Gen Y, baby boomers. I don't know. I suppose this new group is going to be called the pandemics. I mean, there really is no, <laughs> there's no um, empirical research that just because you were born in a certain year, you're the same as the rest of the cohort. In fact, if you gave a psychologist, and you know this probably from analytics, a whole bunch of data and said, can you predict which age cohort this person is in, which generational cohort, are they a baby boomer or are they Gen X? It would be very difficult for you to know that if you just looked at their preferences. Because actually, you know, I'm a 65-year-old person, so I would be labeled a baby boomer. I'm not the same as every other 65-year-old. And in fact, in some ways, I'm rather similar to a 25-year-old uh, who's this, maybe the same as a 45. So the first thing is drop the stereotypes because that really um, really stops you uh, from seeing people for who they, who they are. You simply see them through yep. the lens of a stereotype. The second thing is realize that experience can be incredibly helpful. It's interesting with my own company, HSM, as soon as we went into uh, COVID lockdown, I was very fortunate to have on my board two people who had lived through the last financial crisis. So they simply said, okay, day one, we form a war room. Day two, we do this. Day three. And actually, as a consequence, my my advisory group has did better since COVID than we've ever done. We've had a, we've, we've done better. Uh, and that was partly yeah. because we moved incredibly quickly. And we moved incredibly quickly because we had experienced people on the board who knew what to do in a crisis because they'd already lived through a crisis. And I think we've got to really understand that if we want our organizations to flourish, we need people of different age groups, people with different experiences of, 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 of how they see the world. And, you know, the Google data shows that when Google took a look at all their teams and said, well, what's what predicts whether a team does well? Having different age experiences in a team is, is a wise thing. You know, you, you, you are wise to have different ages. Yeah, I suppose it's, I mean, particularly if you're a product company and your customer base is all different ages, all different different genders, you know, different different ethnicities. 
um, all the other different types of categories that we have, it, it surely makes sense to have a team that, that actually reflects that. Um, and as you said, they yeah. bring different cognitive as well, cognitive um, diversity into, into, into that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. I mean, it, it leads quite nicely to the next question, really, which I think we can expand to, to, to encompass this. So the majority of our listeners work in HR. Um, you know, what is or, or what should be the, the role of HR teams in supporting their organisations around the whole reskilling and learning agenda and, and, the, and, and to help their you know, employees flourish uh, within an organisation? Yeah, well, I think that increasingly, those of you who are in HR, your focus will be on, uh, on productivity. You know, remember, we're, we're, in, a, we're in a recession. Uh, and so your CEOs will be asking the HR group to do that. And part of your uh, way of building productivity is to help people be as skillful as they possibly can be. And we know that learning plays an incredibly important part in in upskilling. Uh, so inevitably, the agenda is going to be an upskilling learning agenda. What what can you do to help that? Well, you know, I would say a couple of things. Number one, and it's a point you made earlier, David, which is you have to help people know what they need to know. And I think that companies really have to do that. In fact, I think governments should also be doing it. And there are some governments who are very good at that, which is just help people to understand if you want to flourish in the next couple of years, this is what you should be learning. So I think flagging up the skills that are going to be crucial in the, in the, in the short, the medium, and possibly even the longer term that's going to be absolutely incredibly helpful for people. And then the second thing is to, you know, build platforms that allow people to learn uh, in what in whatever way they can. So, for example, one of the platforms we've been looking at over the years is created by the learning group at Westpac, which is one of the Australian uh, banks. And, yeah. and that's, you know, it's absolutely great because it helps people um, to to find stuff and to work through stuff. And then the third thing is to really build learning experiences that maximize the time that people are, are taking. So I, I very much like face-to-face -face work. And I think that, you know, we I don't think everyone's going to work from home. I do think that we'll be back in an office. So then the role of the HR is to say, how can we maximize the learning when people are face-to-face? And I yeah. think there's some, you know, we've all got to learn how best to do that. And, and that's something that I, we all have to learn. You know, London Business School professors are learning that. And so, you know, those three aspects, you know, flagging up to people, what's the most important thing I should be learning right now? Secondly, giving them platforms to help them to do that. But thirdly, also to realize that peers and managers and leaders play an incredibly important role to help people learn. Agree with all of that, and it leads nicely to the. This is the last, the last question actually, and this is one we're asking all our guests on the show in this series, and we're asking you to look forward, Linda, which I think shouldn't be too difficult for you given the the books that you that you've published in the past. You know, what will the role of learning and development um, be in twenty thirty? And we're just picking twenty thirty arbitrarily because it's ten years ahead. Where do you see the role of learning and development going um, by twenty thirty? Well, beyond all the things that you've probably heard, I'm going to make another. Uh, I'm going to make another prophecy, which perhaps hasn't. It doesn't seem so obvious, 
which is about ecosystems and communities. Um, I mean, the world can go a whole bunch of ways right now, um, just as we have possible selves, we have possible worlds. Uh, the world that I would like to see is a world of, uh, of less inequality and a world of stronger communities and families. That's the world that I would like to live in. And to do that, uh, learning, you know, people who are responsible for learning need to reach out beyond their full-time employees into their communities to, to support them. Uh, Microsoft is doing that right now. You know, Microsoft has announced, as you, you perhaps know, that they are going to really support people in communities to upskill and reskill. So I would say that the learning groups that really make a difference to the future will be those that see learning not just as something that happens to employees in organizations, but that happens to citizens in communities and indeed in their, in their bigger ecosystem of partners and, and suppliers. And that, I think, would be a marvellous, marvellous contribution that we could make. It's, a, it's, a, it's taking a slightly longer, it's taken a longer term look at learning, isn't it? It's not just about the here and now and upskilling our current employee base. It's about, as you said, enabling your communities, maybe the communities where your base. I'm presuming that Microsoft will be doing this a lot in Seattle, for example, where obviously they've got you know lots of potential employees in the future. But yeah, I, mean, I, I like I like that vision, and it's interesting actually. There's been a few things um, I've seen published recently. I think uh, the likes of BCG and McKinsey um, and others are talking about you know. I think it's trying to really emphasise the the importance of learning, and they're talking about you know will the the chief learning officer actually sit outside HR and, and be a direct report into the CEO. Is, is that something, is that a trend you're seeing? Is that something you'll think will happen? Um, it, it, you know, it, it, whether you report to the CEO or not is dependent on your relationship with the CEO. So I've seen, you know, I've been running my, my uh, HR strategy program at London Business School for 30 years now, and I've lot, met a lot of CHROs. If they're really good and the CEO wants to have a good CHRO, they report into them. If the CLO is yep. really good and it's really important to the CEO, then they report into them and, and, and then the structure changes. So, you know, it's honestly a lot to do with the individual and their skills and it's a lot to do with what the CEO wants. Sometimes, you know, I come across a, a, a senior HR person and I think, wow, how did they ever get that job? You know, then, and then I meet the CEOs and realise that the CEO didn't want they wanted and they wanted someone to sort out car parking and and so on. They, they didn't want anybody sort of super, and so it's really that it's a lot to do, to do with the organisational structure. But but actually, you know, if you're a CLO and you you want to make a difference to the world, then reporting into the CEO is a fantastic way of doing it. Well, Linda, thank you very much for your time and being a guest, and and as someone who lived in France for, for seven years. I'm slightly jealous of the fact you're enjoying all that lovely wine at the moment. So um, can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you on, and they'll follow and follow you on social media? We will we will add some links to the, the stuff we, we we post to the podcast, but it's it's people like to hear from you as well on where yeah. the best is to contact you. Yeah, well, but my email is lgratton at london.edu. Couldn't be easier. Um, and but but actually the main way that people are contacting me right now is LinkedIn. So it's just a normal Linda Grattan LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. And actually, if you drop me a note, we will send you a 
um, uh, something that has all of my COVID webinars and COVID uh, writings. We've got that actually as a as a document. So we'd be really happy to share that. And you can just listen to uh, my webinars and the columns. I've been very, very active since since COVID. Yeah, you certainly have. And a thank you from the community for, for doing that, because I think, you know, lots of us were, were scrambling around a little bit. And I think people like you and Dave Auric and, and others that, that have really kind of really stepped up to the fore, I think, and providing all that advice has, has been really helpful for everyone. So, um, well, thank you for that, um, um, uh, David. And it was, I mean, actually, Dave and I, people know, are great friends. So uh, we do think that that's our role. Um, and so we were really thrilled that we were able to do that and uh, I've learned enormously since COVID enormously and actually what I've done is I promise I'm not going to write about book about COVID but what I have done is to write a series of columns at M- in MIT Sloan um, which means that you write something that comes out within eight days and that for me is has been really important because actually this is all about speed of response so thank you for those kind words David I appreciate that no worries, Linda. We'll, we'll put a link to the, your your column in Mitzlone um, in the in the publicity we put out with this. Linda, thank you very much. Thank um, you. Thank enjoy you, the rest of your time in France. Uh, we'll also put a link to the book as well. And uh, we'll look forward thank to you. again soon. Great. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out the My HR Future Academy at myhrfuture.com. It's a learning experience platform for HR professionals looking to get certified in people analytics, digital HR, and workforce planning. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter by going to the My HR Future website. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to INSEAD professor Giampiero Patriglieri, whose recent article, Learning for a Living in Mid-Zone Management Review, really captured the imagination. So don't miss that one. Stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you next time.